Hello and welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host Venkat. In this episode, we talk to Mr. Srinath Kesavan. Srinath is Chief Executive of uh, Trade Risk Consulting and a very well-known trade finance consultant. He has been a trainer for Euromoney and World Bank Group for many years. My co-producer Mrigang and I know Srinath for many, many years now in Singapore. We are grateful for all the encouragement we received from all of you for our new series called uh, Move Conversations, Trade Stuff. And in this new series, within the Move Conversations, we talk to international business and trade professionals like Srinath. So welcome to Move Conversation, Trade Stuff, Srinath. Thank you, Venkat. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. So let's let's begin with how you got started in trade finance and subsequently, you know, uh, consulting and training bankers and other inter, inter, you know industry professionals in this area. Uh, well, every uh, shift in my career has been incidental. Uh, so it's been an, a journey of accidents happening uh, right through. So okay. when I got out of uh, finished my master's degree, uh, I was looking for a job, and uh, back in the late seventies, it was more a case of taking what you can get rather than trying to be picky mm. about what you want to do in your life. So mm. along came a management trainee position with a textile firm in Ahmedabad. Okay. Uh, so I took that up and um, I was placed in uh, the exports department. So that was my incidental entry into international trade. Mm. So for roughly five years, I was, uh, titles aside, essentially a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, had nothing to do with uh, finance or, or uh, trade finance. So mm. I had no clue about it. Mm. Although at one level, I did have some aspirations of going the accounting route. Okay. Uh, but anyway, what happened was that uh, personal circumstances drew me to Singapore, as to Hong Kong, actually, Okay. Uh, in the mid 80s. And uh, one thing led to another. And I suddenly found myself applying and interviewing for a position again as a trainee five years after I'd started working, but in wow. an international bank. Uh, and that was the start of a beautiful relationship with uh, trade finance. So I worked for the Bank of Credit and Commerce in Hong Kong, which yep. by itself was quite a quite a remarkable bank. Yes. Uh, and, and my <laughs> BCCI International. Yes. My memories, yeah. my memories are very, very positive. I learned a lot. Uh, it and there are a lot of lovely people there, right? Fantastic friends, some of whom I'm still in touch with uh, 30 years later. And I have the greatest respect for many of the people that I worked for. So uh, my experience was altogether extraordinary when I was working in the bank. And considering I was at a junior level, essentially. Right. right. Uh, but the experience that I gained was fantastic because I started in, uh, I went through close to, I think, uh, all told about 14 months of uh, traineeship as such, mm -hmm. uh, where I had, uh, you know, daily classes, nine to five, uh, examinations, then on the job training before you were finally set free. And uh, I started in trade, trade finance operations. So I got my hands dirty, checking documents and uh, processing documentary collections, issuing letters of credit and all that. Right. Great learning. Um, managed to deal with a lot of volumes and uh, high performance standards because uh, that was something that was new to me at that stage in my life. Uh, then I moved on to operational positions within the branch level where I became a little more front office. 
And finally, I became what you'd call today a relationship manager. But uh, I went beyond managing a portfolio of clients to actually writing credit papers and all that. So great learning. And then the bank blew up. And there I was looking for uh, something else to do. I was fortunate again. An Indonesian group, which happened to be a client of BCC at that point, approached me. And uh, I found myself in Singapore uh, as financial controller for a for a startup cotton trading company. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another incredible journey where I'd switched back from the, from the banking side to the corporate side. And uh, while my responsibility was broadly over finance and administration, uh, I was brought in because of my uh, perspectives as a banker, ex-banker. Uh, so that took me another three and a half years. Then for two years, I was in a bit of a wilderness uh, in terms of the fact that I had uh, decided to go on my own. And uh, I attempted a few things like trying to arrange trade finance for clients. I realized that's not something I really want to do. And then one of the European banks hired me for a year long project, uh, which was focused on commodities in India. Right. And that really, again, uh, got me going. And uh, that led to another position in the, to GPMG. But after GPMG, uh, I got into training and development and uh, learning. And uh, that's a whole wild journey by itself. So, you know, great inspirational story for people, you know, for, you know, about resilience, especially, right? <laughs> so many adversities and you bounce back every time. And then at, at some point you decided that like, uh, you know, I'll start on my own, which will, which will be a better way, you know, be an entrepreneur, be a, you know, not only being a consultant. Well, uh, being an entrepreneur was not really a conscious choice because yeah. uh, at the Got point it. in time when uh, GPMG also shut its operations in Singapore, right. uh, we were just getting to the fag end of the Asian financial crisis. True, true. The conditions were not times. ideal and a lot of companies were collapsing and it was really not the best time to to make myself an attractive candidate for a similar position. And so, right, absolutely, yeah. I yeah. said, what do I do? And along came an incidental training opportunity from what was then the Trade Development Board. Right. And I recall that conversation. Uh, somebody called me from Trade Development Board and said, uh, hey, we want you to talk about letters of credit. Mm. And I said, yeah, sure, I can do that in five minutes. <laughs> I've seen all and the good and the bad ones. <laughs> so they said, no, 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 we want you to come and speak for it about for the whole day. I said, how am I going to speak about it for the whole day? I can only talk about it for five minutes. What more can I say? <laughs> And that changed us, Srinath. But changed. I found myself that day, I was supposed to end at 5 p.m. and I was still talking at 6.30. <laughs> so probably I found my new calling. passion, my new love, new yeah. calling. Absolutely. And uh, well, the rest is history. So let's step back a little bit uh, from a conceptual uh, point. Uh, you know, for the uninitiated, uh, you know, or people who have just heard about it, uh, you know, explain what is trade finance. Okay. Let's start, dial back a bit. Mm. When we think about lending to corporates, uh, businesses, the traditional model has been to first, uh, from a bank's point of view, to satisfy themselves about uh, the financial status of the customer, Mm. uh, the purpose for which the loan is granted, when Mm. will repayments be made, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Mm. And uh, revolving around that scrutiny, a decision is made by banks, uh, which to a great extent still occurs because right. uh, that's the corporate banking business uh, to a great extent. 
and uh, once the funds are disbursed uh, in whatever form to the or the credit is disbursed in whatever form to the borrower right uh, the corporate doesn't provide a real time access to where the funds are being deployed or how how it uh, it's actually working for the company they probably provide a periodical financial statement to reassure the lender that they're in good financial state and they have the ability to repay so on and so forth Right. Uh, so, lending to corporates in that way, corporate banking in, in many, in, in the most general sense, I'm, I'm, I'm very being very very general here, uh, is uh, really about uh, lending to a business against uh, their financial status represented by their financial statements, and the source of uh, repayment is the borrower themselves. Uh, trade finance is different. Uh, in trade finance, we of course also as lenders look at the scrutinize the financial status, uh, but we also pay a lot of attention to the actual transaction that needs to be funded. Mm. And when trade finance is actually dispersed, it tends to be more at a transactional level. That's why trade finance falls into transaction banking mm. in, in banking institutions. Uh, so if you ask me to define trade finance, it's not so much about financing the borrower. Mm. It's about financing a trade transaction trade. of the borrower. Right. Uh, and in that way, trade finance distinguishes itself. But at this point, just to complete what I'm saying, we tend to characterize trade finance as being short-term financing. Right. Whereas you've been a trader yourself, so the vast yeah. majority of transactions get completed within 180 days. Correct. Uh, but let's say stretch it to 360 days. Occasionally, the transactions are beyond 360 days, but uh, trade finance, the vast majority is completed definitely within 360 days. So that's short-term. We say it's secured financing because uh, the first collateral that we look for as a lender are the underlying goods. Right. And so we try to control the document of title like a bill of lading or whatever. Right. And the third is we say, this is very important, that's really distinguishes trade finance from other forms of corporate lending is it's self-liquidating. Yes. Uh, so when we say self-liquidating, in the normal sequence of events occurring in a transaction, the transaction repays itself. Exactly, right. So you have, for example, a supplier, you've got a trader, you've got a buyer, and uh, the trader is the one who goes to the bank and gets uh, financing to uh, buy from the supplier and then receive payment from the buyer. At the end of the day, the bank is not looking, is looking at the trader, but they're looking more also at the buyer at the end of the chain and saying, is that buyer good enough to, on which we can take a payment risk? So yep. the payments coming from the buyer then feed into the trader's obligation to offset it's, the loans. They, they look the at the export credit risk of the Exactly. Trader. So in the normal course, the transaction is supposed to repay itself. It's like a working capital cycle that is uh, revolving all the time. True, true. Good. Uh, you know, that gives a good context setting. Um, let's let's come to the sort of more recent times. So what are the, you know, as one would say, winds of change, you know, that are sweeping the global trade finance? Quite dramatic changes, actually. Um, yeah. In more recent times, and I say go back the last three to five years, mm -hmm. there's been considerable discussion in the trade finance community about uh, automating processes. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion about digitization, uh, digitalization, and now digital transformation. Right. Uh, and banks in Singapore have been at the forefront of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you hear of uh, some of the uh, 
local banks that we have uh, leading the charge from the Singapore side. Mm. Um, unfortunately, uh, trade finance has somehow stuck to very archaic processes where typically we rely on uh, documents being put together, those documents physically being signed and uh, typed up or printed on a computer within the office of the trader or the borrower. And, and photocopies and quint duplicates. Yes, physically, <laughs> physically being delivered to a bank and the bank then goes through a checking process and then physically couriers the documents true, true. to the other bank on the other side. And so it's been very document-centric, very uh, physical in its interactions. And mm -hmm. it's, it's never really changed. And all the rule frameworks, mm. uh, like the ICC rules, have sort of revolved around uh, the physical movement of documents to represent trade transactions. Right. And it's somehow something that the whole trade finance world has always been very comfortable with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, several years ago, the whole digitalization movement started. Uh, some of the banks worked in isolation and worked with a few select customers mm -hmm. to run pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, and the results were quite encouraging. And mm -hmm. so over a period of time, the discussion has now engulfed the whole industry. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so any trade finance conference you go to, uh, digitalization and automation is going to be a big part of that uh, conference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's one very big, uh, significant change. Mm -hmm. uh, then the pandemic has accelerated digitalization or discussion on uh, the intentions of financial institutions to really go wholesale into digitalization. Right. Simple things like uh, when you're shut down, how do you deliver documents? Because people are working from home. Correct. Who do you deliver documents to? Then once the documents are processed somehow with a skeletal staff, there's no courier service that's available to move the documents from one location to another. So you know, you suddenly discovered impediments to your normal physical handling of documents. Right. Therefore, the uh, digitalization process became far more urgent. And uh, so that's one very big change that is occurring. And going forward, I think that will be the uh, direction in which trade finance will transform. Right. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you what's happening on the, you know, because many of these are also related to, you know, regulations and compliance and, uh, you know, so what's what's happening in those things? Because it's not only the, you know, banks per se, right? And, you know, the, 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 they're the governments, the, the banking, um, uh, the overarching banking community, not just the individual banks and so on and so forth. So has there been significant changes in global regulation, compliance? Uh, issues and so on and has that landscape also changed uh, you know with the trends that's actually an older discussion but yes very significant change mm -hmm. um, uh, back in the there were a series of crises uh, initially country specific then they became regional specific going back to the 60s and 70s uh, one of the, in my opinion, one of the most significant, uh, shall we say, events was the uh, Latin American crisis, mm -hmm. uh, where many of the European and uh, North American banks had substantial exposure that they'd built up. Right. And uh, when things started going bad in Latin America, all at the same time, mm -hmm. the balance sheets of many of the world's largest banks, not counting the Japanese, the Japanese were actually at that point leading the China's uh, right. rankings of uh, the biggest banks in the world, but um, 
the European and the North American banks suffered huge uh, losses. And that sure. really caught the attention of the regulators uh, where they said, hey, uh, you know, these banks have been uh, building up their franchises. They've been expanding, they've been internationalizing. They've been aggressively giving out, uh, taking exposures on clients all over the world. But when things go bad, uh, how do they manage their balance sheets? So right. the concept of capital adequacy was brought into the discourse. The mm -hmm. narrative uh, changed after that. So once capital adequacy came in, mm -hmm. uh, it, it changed the way banks managed their businesses. So if you can just imagine in your head a balance sheet of a bank, on the asset side, you have, uh, say, loans. On the, on, the, on the liability side, you've got deposits and interbank uh, borrowing. Right. So as long as you could balance those two, life goes on. But suddenly when your loans start going bad and there's a diminution in the value of your loans, what do you do? Do you go back to the depositors and say, hey, guys, I made a loan loss. I'm not going to pay, repay your mm -hmm. deposits before. You can't do that. You'll be run out of town. So that's when the focus shifted and say, oh my God, what we need to do is now look at how much capital we have mm -hmm. on the liability side because the capital has to absorb those losses that we're incurring on the loan side, on the mm -hmm. asset side. Mm -hmm. And therefore, these regulators realized that uh, the banks were operating on very thin capital basis. Mm -hmm. And that was really making the whole banking industry very dangerous. Right. And that became even more evident later on with the many crises that we came to. So. True. That has caused uh, dramatic change and waves of regulation have come in. Mm. Uh, trade finance, I believe as a trade finance person that uh, trade finance has been treated rather unfairly mm -hmm. as a banking business when it came to uh, global banking regulation. Mm. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, ICC and many of the stalwarts, financial stewards in uh, trade finance have put forward the case the trade finance is actually a very safe business for the bank. Uh, it's very transactional, it's very visible, there's real-time visibility. True. Uh, it can be controlled. There are many ways in which it can be controlled. We, we won't get into those details, but right. it's a far safer business than just giving a loan to a corporate and waiting for monies to come back to you. Exactly. Uh, and yet uh, there, is, there has been some response from the regulators, from the global uh, uh, forums, Mm. But it's still not ideal to a point where the, the, the uniqueness of trade finance has been recognized. Mm -hmm. So global regulation has, in a way, stifled some of the growth of trade finance. It has led to banks discharging the smaller clients and focusing more on their bigger uh, customers who, who you know, have very substantial relationships and are of a high order. That's one side. And then the other side, which uh, happened in the year 2000 onwards, mm. has been compliance. Right. Uh, the focus on compliance has really taken off because, again, many of the world's largest banks have been severely penalized uh, for uh, breaches in financial crime compliance. So that has started a whole wave of uh, awareness about uh, how, how compliance needs to be done. And in trade, it's particularly vulnerable to misuse by uh, financial criminals. Mm. So when we talk about money laundering, we talk about sanction breaches and all that. So uh, these are things that I talk about in my trainings as well. So uh, yeah, that's another major development that has changed how banks interact with their clients and how they look at transactions, so on and so forth. So 
So this would have, uh, you know, uh, impacted the lender's profitability and so on, right? Already, you, you know, the, the, the thin margins and then they wanted them to be, uh, have, uh, you know, more cushion to absorb the kind of risks that were take, that they were taking and so on and so forth, right? So, so what happened in, 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 in this context? Well, uh, trade finance has generally been very, like I said, paper intensive and manpower intensive too. Correct. Uh, it's a natural uh, corollary. Right. Uh, so more verification, more checks, more yeah. checks, etc. Uh, now, with the advent of technology, many of these uh, processes uh, are being automated. Okay. Uh, which is, in a way, a good thing. So the nature of uh, skill sets that now trade finance people need to have is also gradually changing mm -hmm. the world that we'll be living in uh, as trade financiers will be very different from uh, what we might have done say even 10 years ago mm -hmm. so um, uh, yes banks have uh, re-examined their portfolios and one of the things they look at is uh, risk adjusted risk adjusted rates of return mm -hmm. Uh, purely on risk-adjusted basis, trade finance should do well. But uh, when you look at the overheads that banks have had to incur in order to maintain a, a significant trade finance franchise, it has not turned out to be as profitable. Right. Uh, and that has therefore led for them to either prune their clients or get out of trade finance all the same. Yeah. And you saw that very dramatic shift happening uh, just recently, in fact, uh, 20, uh, 2020, mm. uh, when oil prices collapsed, uh, we had a wave of uh, collapses of uh, oil trading companies in Singapore. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we could talk about that separately, but uh, in talk in terms of imperative banks, uh, some mm. of the major commodity financiers have uh, shrunk their operations or completely exited. Mm that business. So mm. this is going to have a massive effect on uh, borrowers going mm. forward, uh, mm. particularly in the more vulnerable locations. Right. So um, yeah, again, a lot of things happening and uh, many of this is unpredictable. Right. So you, you just mentioned about the collapse of the oil trading companies and, uh, you know, uh, would you want to you know, talk a few anecdotes and how it impacted, uh, you know, um, both people in the industry on one side, uh, you know, who probably were in better positions as well as some of the banks. What is it that, uh, you know, um, whatever you can, you can share in these areas, I, sure, I guess by sure. now, most of the things have become public information. Yeah, so I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll only speak about stuff that's public anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the big, uh, shall we say, collapses occurred a few years ago uh, on account of uh, uh, a type of warehousing finance that was done in China, in Qingdao, mm -hmm. in particular, uh, where fake warehouse receipts were, uh, uh, were the basis of transactions. Um, that led to huge losses for the mm -hmm. banks, uh, mm -hmm. estimated to be, for the foreign banks alone, a billion dollars. Uh, and for uh, the local Chinese banks, perhaps significantly more. Mm. Uh, in the case of the oil collapses, uh, if you read the uh, reports put out by the uh, judicial managers till mm. now, you hear about things like uh, cargoes that were pledged actually already had been uh, sold off sold. or disposed of 
unauthorized uh, extractions from uh, tanks, uh, fraudulent documents being presented. Uh, so, you know, when you listen to these stories, as far as, as recent as last year, one, you know, is led to believe that, you know, why, why hasn't the banking sector learned its lessons? Mm. Uh, when Qingdao happened, when uh, the oil collapses happened, I'm, I'm willing to go on record and say, uh, I really didn't have sympathy for the banks because the way in which they've been cheated, the way they've been fooled, uh, the, the borrowers have used age-old tricks. Right. Age-old exactly. tricks. This is ancient history. Correct. And banks keep falling for it. And uh, so, yes, now they're reacting to it in terms of, for example, setting up a trade finance registry uh, in order to make sure that there's no double financing, triple financing of the same cargo, hmm. uh, that uh, invoices, uh, whenever receivable finance is being done, the invoices are checked to be genuine. These are fundamental checks. And um, uh, unfortunately, the, the, many of the banks have reacted too late. And this, despite the fact that they have sophisticated uh, information systems, they have the ability to keep checking on clients. But uh, I sense uh, some degree of uh, casual casualness in certain parts of the bank, uh, so certain lenders. So that has probably led to some of these very tragic situations. And it's really tragic because it's not just affecting the bank, but it affects the borrowing community as well. Yeah, company. exactly. The, the you know the good borrowers end up getting you know more pressured, uh, you know, uh, more uh, compliances, more checks, right? Uh, that is that is inevitable. Like, that is yeah. inevitable, and that is good in the long run. Uh, it is good because yeah, but said, they also get caught in more bureaucratic uh, things. Things like whereas the bad guys get away. Yeah, get away with it. Yeah, I mean, like the more higher pricing for those who continue to get finance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the top tier, of course, uh, it, life hasn't changed so much for them. At the top tier, they still get, uh, you know, oodles of credit and uh, pricing is still an issue that they have to discuss with their banks. But it's the ones below the top tier that are suffering. And then the, you look at the bottom half and those guys have virtually been abandoned. Right. It, it has a close parallel at a, you know, at a, in, at, in consumer banking level of uh, average retail customer getting uh, pressured frequently for, you know, with KYC compliances and, you know, refilling the same document, resubmitting it. And then, you know, this and uh, and then, uh, you know, and these guys are never going to probably do money laundering. But the guys who do, you know, those kinds of scandals, they get away. Right. And it's well, the average customer with his neighborhood bank. I wouldn't, I wouldn't equate what's happening in other parts of the bank with what's happening in trade finance because some of the processes that you just alluded to uh, are necessary uh, because the regulators are putting a lot of pressure on the banks to institute processes where they have to do this, uh, what we refer to as customer due diligence. Um, so uh, today, opening a bank account is not as simple and straightforward as it used to be even five years ago. Uh, banks are obliged to do the checks even for a walk-in customer and in fact, if you walk in without references, uh, it's different if you're in Singapore, you have an NRIC and your credentials can be checked, but in many parts of the world, there's no such system. Uh, so it becomes challenging for banks to even decide who to accept as a customer or not. So 
that is something that the banks have to do. And like I said, uh, it appears very intrusive. It appears very cumbersome, time, time, time consuming. But uh, we and banks are working hard to find better ways to do it. But it's something that we cannot avoid. Uh, but trade uh, is in an is in a challenge of its own, and uh, I believe trade should uh, the trade trade finance community should uh, should uh, and and vice versa should they are actually spending a lot of time uh, trying to figure out how to avoid the type of tragic situations that we come across. I just hope it doesn't doesn't happen that frequently as it unfortunately has in the last ten years. Right, but and. And like you said, uh, uh, these things have been happening uh, frequently, uh, even even when you go back all the way to the uh, Latin American crisis, and then you know su subsequent iterations. The form, uh, shape, and geography may change, but uh, these things are uh, getting repeated. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I was reading Bloomberg just two days ago. Okay, and uh, there was a case of a very large globally recognized trading company. Okay, so this is a heavyweight. Mm -hmm. They had bought uh, a copper cargo from Turkey and they were shipping it to China. Okay. Uh, according to their uh, sourcing, they actually did have container loads of uh, copper ingots. Okay. Uh, it was checked and the container was sealed. Mm -hmm. uh, between the time the container was sealed and the time that the containers were opened in China, mm -hmm. Uh, something has happened, resulting in the on the Chinese side, they're finding that uh, they actually don't have copper ingots, but they've got uh, some stone, mm -hmm. which is painted to look like copper. Okay. Now, how rudimentary can that be? Exactly, how, right? This is this was something taught to us in business be? school, right? Uh, yeah. we, we, so, when I went to business school, they taught me you know, things like this, right? They have to be alert to... And there are procedures, right? You have... Uh, uh, third party like SGS or Bureau Veritas and others who, who well, do these again, inspections and then done now the, no 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 they those guys have uh, some inspector has done the inspection yeah and the container has been sealed but what has happened is that the container has been broken into right uh, sometime between the time the goods were uh, received for shipment and the goods actually arrived right and uh, somebody just stolen the goods and replaced it with stuff that is garbage. Wait a minute, Srinath, but uh, there is already, uh, you know, uh, Singapore-based company, for example, which has yeah. a GPS tracking device exactly. and on all high-value cargo, most people put that thing and at every minute you can, you know where it is and, you know, if it is uh, tampered with all of that. So you, uh, was that tampered or they did not even put such a GPS tracking security lock uh, that like, like, which is very well known? I don't have the detail as to whether they had adopted that technology, but clearly uh, something has happened to allow for the switch of cargoes. Right. And, um, you know, the, the tragedy has occurred. But when you analyze it, uh, you know, me as a bystander, I just look at it in the paper. I just shake my head and I said, exactly. how can this happen in this day and age? Exactly, exactly. And in the, the technology you refer to, I think it's a Singapore company that has created this technology where Absolutely. you can remotely control yes. the opening and closing of containers or at least the opening of containers. 
uh, I don't know the full details of that technology, but I've heard about it. Yeah, it, not only it 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 is for uh, containers and even other cargo. Yeah, it's it's so, a device, a security device, uh, and it, it you know it's it's put on the container or you know high value electronic cargo and so on and so forth. It is there all along, and any tampering and any given time you can you know uh, know the location of the of that particular container or that carton or whatever that thing is. And uh, so yeah. probably this event will trigger a greater, uh, shall we say, interest in adopting these technologies. Clearly, it's not being adopted worldwide, yep. but uh, it is something that's become necessary and uh, right time, right place, I guess. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us in yet another episode of Move Conversations. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the Move Conversations YouTube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. Thank you very much. Till I see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day.